Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Joe, what do you think of when I say the word trident? Uh, gum. (laughs) Is that the wrong answer? No, wait, give me another shot. All right. Okay, I think of uh, Ariel's father in The Little Mermaid. I think he's got one. He does. Yes, he has some form of trident, as I recall. Uh, wait, no, that's not a good answer either, is it? No, wait, let's see. How about... About, I think, of the devil, right? The devil's got a trident. He does. He has that, that pitchfork, which is essentially a trident, a, a three-pronged spear for, you know, stabbing sinners in the backside, I imagine. Uh, why are you asking me about a, a particular three-tipped spear weapon, Robert? Ah, because that is what we're talking about today uh, here on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Now, Robert, when you said let's do an episode about tridents— Originally, I admit, I was skeptical. I was like, (laughs) what is there to say about tridents? But okay, I'm glad I trusted you because we found some weird stuff about tridents. This is a topic that I think it's been brewing for a while. Uh, for me, be, be, like I grew up seeing these images of you know Neptune or Poseidon with the trident, and certainly the devil and the pitchfork, and I I never really thought about it that much because on one level it didn't look like a very good weapon. Like I, I just I couldn't imagine like really cool fighting scenarios with it. I looks kind of awkward. It looks awkward, yeah. And, and then when you see it used in gladiatorial combat, which we'll do, we'll discuss in this episode, that too looks awkward and forced. Like that poor guy. Uh, forced to fight for his life, and he's given such a stupid weapon to do it with. You know, it looks like it would be much better if you were trying to accurately spear a fish than if you're trying to, like, fight a gladiator in the arena. Yes, and and indeed, that is one of the practical uses of the trident, which we'll we'll also discuss here. Uh, But I think the thing is, I just, I kept encountering the trident in various places, you Mm. know, different symbols of the trident. Um, You know, I went with my family to Barbados and the flag uh, there has this this really cool trident image. Okay. Uh, If if you start looking for it, the the trident seems to be everywhere in just cultures uh, around the world. You know where the trident is not? is in nature. That's right. You you look around for trident shapes in nature. Now, there are branching tree shapes everywhere in nature. Uh, and, you know, you can maybe argue that I guess there's some sort of trident things. There are like plants with three leaf structures. There's like clover and stuff. Uh, but I try to think of like a three-legged animal, say. That would be a good analogy in nature for the trident. But there's no such thing. There no. is no three-legged animal in nature. Not a naturally occurring one. I mean, you, you do find dogs with three legs, of course. There's one in the right. office. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, three-legged dogs are great. But, yeah, there are not uh, – Animals that are supposed to have three legs. Right. And that's kind of odd, isn't it? Like, wouldn't you expect there would be at least one animal out there that has three legs? But no, this does not occur. This is just not something that DNA on Earth makes molecules do. Yeah, yeah. Now, you mentioned trees and streams and things of this nature. And I do think that is probably part of the appeal of of the trident symbol. Uh, it implies movement and division. Uh, it's also a three-in-one image, three points obeying the thrust of a single combatant, mm-hmm. uh, a natural visual expression, too, of power, both in the power of, of tool use and in the power of, uh, of one commanding others to follow their command. So it's no wonder that we see, uh, see uh, various uh, trident weapons in the clutch of gods and demons or other beings that are uh, – that we uh, that we uh, embody with power. Okay, so it sounds like you're setting up a, a, the trident as a kind of uh, a divine tool or divine weapon by virtue of its three prongs. Yeah, and that's where we, we see it uh, all over the place. And we'll get to those wonderful examples of, of the trident as the, the divine weapon, as the, some sort of, of holy instrument that the gods use to, uh, uh, you know, to inflict damage on the earth, poor mortals, and rival demons. Mm-hmm. And then stemming from that, we also get various uh, holy weapons and sacred items that are used by by warriors and rulers in various cultures. But then uh, we also have these just ancient tools that we also find around the world, three-pronged fishing spears. Now, why would three prongs be especially useful in a fishing spear as opposed to any other kind of spear like, say, a hunting spear? I was thinking about this, and it seems to me – correct me if you disagree – 
The advantage of a three-pronged spear might have to do with the properties of how water interacts with light and the refraction of light uh, as it passes through the surface of a body of water. Oh, yes, we've talked about this. And you can, of course, the, the, the easiest way to experience this is to have like a glass, a clear glass, full, uh, half filled with water, and then you stick a pencil in it mm-hmm. and look at the glass from the side. Yeah. And, and, and it, there's an optical illusion that throws you off there. Yeah, so if, there, if there's difficulty in seeing exactly where you need to stab to hit something in the water, especially if it's something like a fish, not like a whale or something that's like a big, easy target to mm-hmm. hit, but if it's like a fish – I can imagine it being sometimes difficult to aim correctly to hit the fish with a single prong spear. But if you've got more sort of a range of attack points that you can aim roughly perpendicular to the fish, then you might have a better chance of getting it with somewhat approximate aim. Ah, oh, yeah, I, I like this hypothesis. This, uh, th- this, this sounds reasonable. Now, for whatever reason, uh, people have been using spears to fish with uh, since very ancient times. There are 15th century BCE Egyptian depictions of it. Uh, the Book of Job refers to spear fishing as well. And today, you can still you can go online and you can shop for fishing spears. You'll find quite a, a quite quite a few different types. You can get your two pronged or bident. Uh, style spears. You can get four or five pronged uh, spears. You can get your three pronged tridents, uh, which I see referred to as frog spears. I don't know why why three is particularly good for for frogs versus these other models. Um, (laughs) But I was looking around about it and I I actually looked up a Gizmodo article titled, So You Want to Go Spear Fishing for the Very First Time. (laughs) And uh, the author uh, shares the following. Quote, spear tips. We used both JBL's three-prong barbed paralyzer, $34, and basic single-point spear tip with fold-out barb. The paralyzer reduced the need for pinpoint accuracy, but wasn't quite as good as the single point at retaining fish once they were speared. The compromises of life. Yes. (laughs) Now, I have to admit, for the longest, like basically up until um, this week— I just always assumed that the tridents that you see um, held by various gods and beings and and in these various myths and artistic depictions, I just assumed that they were all fishing spears that had been, you know, transformed from a mundane tool to a divine object. Because we see this kind of movement a lot, right? We see gods wielding things like hammers. Oh, yeah, Thor's hammer. It's, what's it called, Mjolnir? That sounds right, yes. Mule deer. Okay, so mule deer. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it makes sense, right? You have these, 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 these objects, these tools, and then when we, uh, we, we create these gods, we give them things to signify various powers and acts. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, uh, there's one curious uh, case, too, of the, the Chinese uh, uh, Ru Yi, which is a scepter, a royal scepter. Okay. So a symbol of divine power. Right. You know, you just – one with power would brandish it. It identifies that they have the power to command people around. And then you can – if you want, you can point it at various things and say, hey, you get me that, right? Right. Uh, that's basically the function of a scepter. Except this particular scepter has also clearly been used as a back scratcher. <laughs> so there, there's kind of a – you see different theories about this, whether it began as a back scratcher uh-huh. or it is just a – uh, you know, just a symbol of power that was then used as a back scratcher later on. So, uh, hey, it, it's, divine emperor's itch too. Yeah, but it, but it, it's it's interesting because which which direction is the movement going? Is the object mm-hmm. going from mundane, practical object to something that is merely symbolic, or is the movement going in the other direction? Something that has no practical purpose. But then a practical purpose emerges for it. Well, that's a really good question. I would tend to assume that it could go both ways, right? But which which did it go in this case? Because obviously, yeah, uh, practical tools take on divine uh, divine aspects, uh, especially when they become, you know, embedded in our consciousness. Like if we use them a lot, the tool sort of becomes an extension of the body. So in the same way that the body has a counterpart in heaven, of course, the tool as an extension of the body has a counterpart in heaven. I mean, there is no actual Thor's hammer, but if you have a king or an emperor with a divine scepter, you know, they've got it around. They might as well use it for things that they need a big stick for. Scratching backs might be one of those <laughs> things. There might be other things too. 
Now, coming back to tridents, before we proceed with some mythological examples, uh, we should probably touch on the the etymology of the word. Okay. Uh, trident comes from the Latin tridentus, or three-toothed. Okay. As opposed to bident, uh, which we also have, have referred to and will refer to, which would be a two-toothed weapon, which has enjoyed arguably uh, less symbolic success. Though you do see it uh, pop up in artistic depictions. Now, I just thought of a great superhero, superhero who fights with a tuning fork. It'd be like a musical superhero. It'd be called like the tuner. The tuner. <laughs> yeah, tuner is, a, a, yeah, that's essentially a bident. All right, so let's talk about some um, some mythic examples of uh, of trident use or things that at least uh, appear to be tridents and have been treated as tridents uh, by in various interpretations. Robert, please, please tell me you're going to take me to ancient Babylon. Of course. Uh, we always go to ancient Babylon. It's yeah? the best place to go. <laughs> All the best gods. Yeah. Well, we're going to actually check in with our old friend Marduk here. Um, Marduk is often seen with an odd-looking three-toothed weapon uh, that is sometimes interpreted as a form of trident. Uh, now, Marduk uh, was a Babylonian thunder god who eventually rose up in the pantheon to the point that he became considered the prime god of Babylon and was uh, apparently described with 50 different names. And he's also the slayer of the primordial Tiamat. Uh, and there's actually a wonderful uh, uh, image depicting this uh, where you see this uh, this winged, like, lion, dragon-like monster. And mm-hmm. here comes Marduk with these uh, with one of these weapons in each hand. Why would he have a trident? Why would he have a fishing spear? Because there are plenty of other Babylonian gods uh, that are that are associated with the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would be the ones to have the trident, right? Uh, so I, I was reading about this. I, I found a book uh, by Derek M. Elsom titled Lightning, Nature and Culture, uh, which has a lot of info in it about various thunder and lightning gods. So if, mm-hmm. that's, if that's your jam, I highly recommend uh, picking that up. But the author makes a connection between the trident weapon of Marduk and not fishing, but lightning. Lightning, of course, is a traditional weapon of mighty gods, right? I mean, that's the weapon of Zeus. And Zeus is sometimes depicted holding three thunderbolts in his hand. Elsom writes, the images of successive storm gods in Mesopotamia depicted on monuments and cylinder seals reveal developments in the depiction of lightning. Lightning was originally shown by two or three wavy or zigzag lines representing the celestial flames of its flashes or bolts. They were later joined together at the bottom by a short stem, handle, or sometimes a longer staff that the storm god would hold and throw. The two-pronged bident and and three-pronged trident thunder weapon should not be confused with Poseidon's trident, which usually has barbs on the prongs like a fishing spear. He continues, an alternative development in imagery, along with the addition of a short stem or staff uh, to the lightning flashes, was that two or three of the wavy lines were placed together to form a bundle of lightning flashes. The middle of this bundle was later modified and molded together to create a hand grip, and the single thunderbolt, or karania, was formed with two active ends. So what we're seeing here isn't a double-bladed trident sword as much as a clutch of three thunderbolts with the style drifting over the years. You know, I think I misspoke a minute ago when I said Zeus is holding the three thunderbolts. Zeus is sometimes depicted holding something that looks like a bundle of thunderbolts or something like that. But specifically what I was thinking of was the god Adad or Hadad, another uh, ancient Near Eastern storm god who clutched oh, yeah. three, three thunderbolts exactly like you're talking about. It uh, it also reminds me of another odd weapon slash symbol that one comes across in uh, Hindu iconography uh, and one that has also in- intrigued me in the past, the Vajra. Uh, mm. One finds the Vajra either as an embellishment on the pommel of a sword or on both ends of a hilt in the same manner as uh, this, uh, this, this symbol that Marduk is holding. And Elsom uh, points out that this too is a highly stylized thunderbolt, quote, shaped like a double-ended flower bulb or club. That is a wicked sword. I mean, it looks like a it looks like a good old sword hat made out of gold fire. Yeah, yeah. If you if you want to see this for yourself, just do an image search for Vajra. That's V A J R A, and then sword, and you'll see some wonderful examples of this. But there are also straight up uh, tridents in the in the Hindu pantheon, right? That's right. Shiva has a weapon. Uh, that is known as the uh, Trishula, which we'll get to in a minute. But before we, we get to uh, to Shiva, we should probably talk a little bit about Poseidon or Neptune. Okay. Right, well, first we should take a break, and then when we come back, we will get into the Greek god of the sea. 
All right, we're back. Sorry to keep Poseidon waiting like that, but but he's patient, right? Uh, he is not so patient, right? Poseidon <laughs> Poseidon holds grudges, doesn't he? He does. He's the enemy of Odysseus. That's right, uh, and wreaks a lot of havoc um, uh, in Odysseus's direction with that trident, that uh, symbolic divine weapon that he uses to uh, just pretty much what make anybody's life miserable that gets in his way. Now, what I can't remember, how does Poseidon use his his trident against Odysseus? Well, in general, he uses it to basically just to stir things up, quite literally, to to, okay. to stir up uh, storms, devita- devastating waves, uh, to create new sources of water, uh, just general geologic chaos. I don't, is that the best use of tool physics, if you're using a trident to stir things up, wouldn't it be better if he had a powerful magic spoon or something with a large flat <laughs> surface to really get the waters churning? Like an ore? Yeah. <laughs> it seems like a trident might be better if you wanted to, I don't know what, like dissolve some sugar into the water. <laughs> this is a great question, though, because it gets down to the heart of, of why does Poseidon have this weapon? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I, having just grown up seeing images of Poseidon uh, my whole life, I just, I, I never really questioned it. Like, that's the weapon he has. And then when I thought about it, I'm like, oh, it's a fishing spear. Right. That's, that's all there is to it. Well, yeah, he's god of the sea. There's some fish in the sea, I think, right? Aren't there fish in the sea? Yeah. That's what I'm told. Makes sense. Now, the mythic origins of the weapon vary, uh, as one might expect with uh, with myth and mythic traditions. Uh, it was perhaps the work of, uh, of the master craftspeople or giants uh, who were known as the Telkines, who also created Cronus's sickle. Mm. Or it was the gift of the Cyclopes. Oh, okay. Uh, that's plural for Cyclops. Now, didn't Poseidon have a son who was a Cyclops? He did. He did. <laughs> it, gets, it gets complicated. Okay. Um, but this is what uh, uh, Apollodorus had to say in the library as translated by Fraser. Okay. And the Cyclopes then gave Zeus thunder and lightning and a thunderbolt. And on Pluto, they bestowed a helmet and on Poseidon, a trident. Armed with these weapons, the gods overcame the Titans, shut them up in Tartarus and appointed the hundred handers their guards. But they themselves cast lots for the sovereignty, and to Zeus was allotted the dominion of the sky, and to Poseidon the dominion of the sea, and to Pluto the dominion in Hades. So is it better to get the sea or to get Hades? I I always thought that, like, Poseidon came in second. That was kind of my read, but that's... That's like kind of a landlocked way of looking at it, right? I mean, right. I'm, I was that's me as a child in Tennessee thinking about uh, about uh, the ocean. But if you were a Greek, it might well be the opposite, or it might well be the the case that uh, that Zeus and Poseidon are on equal footing. Yeah, if you're a seafaring culture, say a lot of your economy is based on trade across the oceans mm-hmm. or on fishing. Uh, you got to think that a god of the sea is much more consequential than we would normally consider a god of the sea living in, you know, some kind of landlocked area, like you say. I mean, the whims of the sea decide your fortunes. Indeed. And then Hades, I mean, certainly that that <laughs> Hades awaits uh, uh, no, everybody. Right. There's no whims of Hades. Hades right. is just, it's like death and taxes. <laughs> so maybe they all, maybe they're, these are truly equal uh, uh, portions of the, the cosmos. Mm-hmm. But this actually ties into some of the research I was looking at. H.B. Uh, Walters uh, wrote a paper in uh, 1893 that was published in the Journal of uh, Hellenistic Studies. Oh, so we got a we got an archaic bit yeah. of scholarship here. Yeah, this is this is a, this one's a bit old, uh, but it, but it actually it, uh, reads really really well. It's a very mm-hmm. nicely uh, written uh, uh, paper. But he discusses the artistic uh, evolution of the trident and mm-hmm. uh, discusses that that uh, you know the writing of the trident predates any artistic depiction that was then known. Uh, but uh, if you look at the Iliad, there's nothing to indicate the shape of the trident. There's there's merely the suggestion based on the word choice that it's composed of three parts uh, in some key way. Hmm, so it could be like three sticks bound in the middle or something? I guess. I mean, if, it's, if you're just t- looking at the word, mm-hmm. there's some uh, room for interpretation there. Interesting. So Walters looked at various early artistic examples, and he traced an interesting evolution uh, for the depiction of tridents. Uh, in, not from like a fishing spear to more elaborate, uh, you know, three-pronged uh, uh, weapons or symbols, but from a lotus bud to this barbed three-pronged spear that we associate with with Poseidon and Neptune. Now, what's the significance of the lotus bud? Well, this is interesting. This gets back to what uh, something we were talking about earlier. Uh, the trident, the proper trident, may not appear in nature, 
but uh, something like a lotus bud does and has mm. this trifold design and instantly speaks to us with various uh, you know, uh, symbology related to, uh, to uh, you know, units of three. I want to come back to the significance of that symbology in a little bit. This lotus scepter is apparently pretty common in Greek art and is typically held by a god or goddess. And Zeus himself is seen in, in, uh, in various depictions with a, with a very similar scepter. So the idea is that this lotus bud scepter eventually somehow morphed into the three-pronged weapon. Yes, the idea here is that the, the lotus staff was the emblem of Zeus and that there might have been just less distinction between Zeus and Poseidon among early Greeks and that Poseidon might have been nothing short of Zeus's marine form. I've read the exact same thing, that Poseidon was in some sense the Zeus of the sea. Yeah, and uh, and so they simply had the same scepter. But then, as time goes by, as we as we have different uh, artistic depictions roll one after the other, you see this uh, this evolution. You see this uh, this distinction made, and uh, this this thing, this scepter, the symbol that Poseidon is holding, gradually comes uh, to resemble a fishing spear rather than the the lotus scepter of Zeus. Oh, if this is a correct explanation, this is fantastic because it matches up some stuff we've talked about on the show before that I always really like where there there's a way of interpreting an artistic tradition as deriving from a misunderstanding of previous art. Yeah. One explanation for the origin of the unicorn tradition is that possibly there were ancient depictions on, say, uh, cylinder seals or something like that of natural animals, naturally occurring two-horned animals like the oryx or the ibex. But they're depicted in profile, so it looks like they've only Mm. got one horn shooting up out of their head because the horns are lined up with each other as the animals in profile. And so people saw that, misunderstood it thought that there was this one-horned animal out there and started the unicorn tradition. We don't know that's what happened, but that's highly possible. Uh, And so maybe what's going on here is a similar, like, misinterpretation of previous generations of artists depicting a god holding something. Yeah, it reminds me of the line uh, from Umberto Eco about books speaking to other books. But, of course, art uh, works of art speak to other works of art. Yeah. So if that's correct, that's really interesting. So Walter also, Walters also references the work of John O'Neill, uh, who argued that the, the Hindu uh, Trishula, which we're about to talk about, uh, may have also begun as a lotus. And the same origin might, might be placed on the, the fleur de lis as well. This, of course, being the, the, the symbol of the, what, the New Orleans Saints? Uh, <laughs> I think that's what it is. Yeah? Let the good times roll. But uh, but he let the, let the good tridents roll. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but uh, I, but Walters doesn't completely agree with O'Neill on this. He said, "Quote with these theories, I am not altogether inclined to agree. As explanation by means of symbolism is always, though fascinating, a dangerous course to pursue. Besides, my point is this." That the lotus scepter and trident are not parallel forms, but that the one grew out of the other. And that since the lotus scepter as an attribute of Poseidon is only found in these examples of early date, whereas the trident form belongs to all periods, the lotus must be the earlier form from which the other has been evolved by a process of differentiation. Hmm. And he stressed that he was far from certain on the matter. So he is saying his opinion is they're not just parallels, but that the lotus scepter came first and that turned into the the trident. Correct. Yes. Now, writer and classicist uh, Robert Graves also had something to say about this in his work, uh, Greek Myths. Uh, the Greek myths, uh, pardon. Uh, he wrote, Poseidon's trident and Zeus's thunderbolt were originally the same weapon, weapon the sacred labris or double axe, but distinguished uh, from other when Poseidon became god of the sea and Zeus claimed the right to the thunderbolt. So this is the kind of axe you'd imagine like an orc holding, or I don't <laughs> know, maybe a dwarf too in your yeah. fantasy that it's the axe with the blade on both sides. Yes. So Battle axe style. So graves seem to be presenting like a, a different type of evolution from a, from a different uh, sort of primordial symbol, but still he's talking about the same sort of uh, evolution uh, of form. Mm-hmm. All right, so this brings us back to Shiva. In Hindu traditions, Shiva is uh, is the destroyer of evil and also uh, also the transformer. N- not the robot kind, but right. like a transformer of things and states of affairs. Correct. Yes. So so Shiva is one of the Trimurti, the the three gods of the cosmic lifespan. Brahma is the creator, Vishnu is the sustainer, and Shiva is the destroyer of worlds. Now, Shiva is often seen to brandish this uh, trishula, uh, which means three 
uncouthed or three pronged, uh, and it, uh, it, it it is definitely a weapon as well as a symbol of of power. And uh, it's uh, again also attributed to possible lightning or lotus bud origins. And there's a lot of symbolism wrapped in it too: empire and transcendental reality, the power of the trimurti and the three uh, shaktis of will, action, and wisdom. And you also see other Hindu deities uh, that seem to brandish such a weapon, such as uh, the goddess uh, Durga, who slays a demon with it, uh, as well as uh, Parvati, the goddess of love, fertility, and devotion. Hmm. There's even this uh, origin story for Ganesha, the the elephant-headed remover of obstacles, in which Parvati creates a child out of turmeric paste and brings it to life to guard her house while she's bathing. But then this boy that she creates tries to stop Shiva upon Shiva's arrival, and enraged, Shiva beheads the boy with the Trishula. And angered by this, uh, Parvati demands that Shiva restore the boy, and he does so by placing an elephant's head upon the body. Whoa. Wait, how do you – seems like beheading with a Trishula would be difficult. Well – It's not like a bladed – in, in some depictions, though, the outer the outer barbs take mm-hmm. on a blade-like appearance. Oh, okay. Uh, kind of that uh, fleur-de-lis kind of uh, appearance. So that's, that's the weird thing about the trident is that you have your sort of basic pitchfork designs, mm-hmm. but then sometimes there are barbs, sometimes there are not barbs, sometimes all three barbs are the same length. Sometimes the ones on the outside are longer. Sometimes the central one's longer. Sometimes the the ones on the outside have, have kind of like outer blades to them. I can see that. If the outside edges of the outer barbs are sharp, it's sort of like a cross between a spear and an axe. So yeah. I guess it's a polearm, you know, yeah, general yeah. polearm. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is, a, this is a great point. Yeah, you, you see these trident-like forms with polearms because – Range and leverage make them good weapons to use against mounted soldiers, uh, as well as the, the ease of their construction and adaptability from farm tools. So, if you had this um, this, this three pronged uh, uh, blade and you had blades on the edge, you could you can you can really wave it back and forth as need be, as well as stab with it. And the length of it gives it not only reach but also power because it's got a lot of weight. So you can essentially just sort of drop it on your enemy. <laughs> yeah. Now, here's a question I had uh, when I was looking into all this. It just suddenly dawned on me. I'm reading about Poseidon and Neptune and Shiva, but there is another pretty popular figure in at least uh, more modern Western traditions, uh, and that is Satan, the devil, who has a pitchfork, yes, which is, you know, a pitchfork being something you use to to move hay around, but you look at it, it's clearly a trident. Yeah. Sometimes there may be, I guess, more or fewer prongs. Um, depending on, uh, on on who's uh, illustrating the devil or devils. Uh, but very often you see a three-pronged spear. You see a trident. Where did the devil get a trident? That is a good question. I wondered about that because I am quite sure the Bible does not say the devil has a pitchfork. Yeah, I don't remember uh, any mention of a pitchfork. So as, as always, I, I love to get into some history of the devil. Um, <laughs> so one answer I came across was in an academic work on the development of the idea of the Christian devil concept. And it was a book called Devil, A Mask Without a Face Ooh. by Luther Link, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2004. I think I want to read this whole book because it, it was really interesting, the part I read. And the part I read about the trident uh, was just early on. So it seems like he gets into a lot of interesting ideas. But Link writes about the how the idea of the devil that we have today, like the devil you see in cartoons, the devil mm-hmm. you see in popular rep- representations, it's got three major influences. One of them is early readings of the New Testament. That's the most straightforward one uh, because though there is a Satan – in the Hebrew Bible, uh, it is not really the same character that you see represented, say, in the Christian literature. For example, in the book of Job, the Satan character that appears is does not seem to be like an evil adversary of God, but seems to be more sort of a prosecutor figure who is skeptical of the virtues of the created humankind yes. and wants to sort of like test our metal and sh- and expose us as frauds before our creator. Yeah, he's just, he was he's just part of the court doing his job which is to bring up the counter argument to the ruler. He's a narc. He's narking on humanity. <laughs> 
so, so that's sort of the Satan character in Job. But then later on, you see this development in the Christian tradition where where Satan takes on aspects of being an adversary of God Himself. Uh, Satan is more this evil figure representing. Uh, there, there's still some sort of prosecutor type elements that the devil plays in the New Testament, for example, in the Gospels when when Satan tempts Christ in the right. wilderness. Right. So there again, you see sort of like this prosecutor mindset. It wants to show how weak you are. It wants to make you fail. But then also there there's just this devil as a personification of sin or evil. And this definitely comes through in works like Revelation. But then again, there is a whole lot that people believe about the devil that has nothing to do with the Bible. It's not in the Bible at all. It comes from things like uh, Link points out the rebel angel character created by John Milton in Paradise Lost and continued in uh, romantic literature traditions and with poets like Blake and Baudelaire, th- this rebel angel character is not really a feature of the Bible. It's more a feature of Milton and these other poets. And then, of course, you've got the images created and associated with the notion of satanic cults and black sabbats. Yeah, and this is where you see all this uh, this pagan bestial imagery of of uh, satan as this uh, this this shaggy uh you know lord of hell that engages in all of these uh, these crude acts with various uh, uh witches yeah exactly and we'll get more into where those depictions come from in a minute but with the exception uh link says of one ninth century old saxon manuscript all known literary descriptions of satan were pretty closely based on the text of the new testament until about 1589 when Christopher Marlowe wrote Dr. Faustus. And of course, that was a play, he, you know, an early modern play based on the Faust legend, the idea of a, a an alchemist or a seeker of knowledge, someone who uh, is egotistical and wants, to, wants more power than he really has coming to him and does a deal with the devil to get that power. But then, of course, realizes only too late that the deal you make with the devil is always a bad deal. Right. And this is such a, a staple of our uh, of our satanic literature, I guess you would say, in storytelling uh, that it uh, we of, we often forget that it wasn't always baked into the pie. Right. Uh, but outside of literature, now that that's when he was talking about literature. Outside of literature, in the more popular folklore, the image of the devil was informed by fantasies about heretics and witches, uh, first appearing around the 12th century and developing more as time went on. And he says images of the devil are really scarce in early Christian history, uh, though we have images of Satan as early as the ninth century, it really wasn't until about the 1300s that the images of Satan took on the visual characteristics we now associate with Satan. And Link writes, indeed, mirroring what we were talking about earlier, that the image of the devil's pronged weapon or pitchfork is almost definitely derived from the trident of Poseidon. So directly from this imagery of of the gods of classical antiquity, which itself was probably derived from these three bolts of lightning shown in the grip of the ancient Babylonian storm god Adad or Hadad, which I mentioned earlier. And so Hadad, if you look up pictures of him, there will be these carvings and he'll be in profile walking kind of like an Egyptian hieroglyphic mm-hmm. character walking or something like that. And uh, Adad will have his hand out and he'll be holding what looks like lightning bolts, but he'll be clutching them like they're stalks of wheat, All which right. is interesting. Yeah, very like much a, like Marduk. Yeah, that, like uh, a harvest of lightning. Huh. But so you might be wondering, now wait a minute, why would the god Poseidon's weapon show up in the hands of the Christian devil? That doesn't make any sense. But this is actually part of a very common motif in Christian history, not just Christian history, but especially in Christian history, of adapting characteristics of another person's religion or another religion's god to serve as characteristics of your religion's devils and demons. And so one example is that many of the names of the Christian and Jewish demons are taken from names of gods of other religions of the ancient Near East. For example, one of our favorites, Beelzebub or Beelzebul, that's derived from the name of a Philistine god. See how Beelzebub contains Baal, meaning Lord, which was, you know, a a god of the ancient Near East. Uh, Another one, Dagon, was a Mesopotamian god later believed to be a Christian demon. And then became part of the uh, Lovecraftian mythos. Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, the the much reviled uh, ev- evil demon Moloch is believed to be a god of some of the Canaanites, uh, the, the god of a child sacrifice and destruction. Not to be confused with Mammon, who represents uh, just greed. Right, forever stooped over looking, uh, looking for gold embedded in the roads of heaven. <laughs> 
but yeah, so so you've got those kind of things. And then I found another interesting entry in a, a more encyclopedic work called The Classical Tradition from Harvard University Press in 2013. They write that some medieval Christian artists relied on traditional representations of the Greek god Pan as a source for images of the devil. So yet again, taking gods mm-hmm. from another religion, making them your devil. And so Pan, being a god of shepherds, hunters, the wilderness, the rural areas, uh, had these goat like qualities of horns and hooves and uh, it was part of the more general tradition of satyrs and sylvans and fauns. It's almost like this idea of human religion uh, having to work with like a prop closet of existing (laughs) motifs and they're like, we got this devil character, dress him up. Well, what do we got? Well, we got this goat costume from Pan. Uh, oh yeah, and we have this uh, this trident here that would belong to Poseidon. Uh, roll those out. Let's 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 get those on a character. Yeah, you're, it, totally true. It's like '50s monster movies, seeing if they <laughs> can like rework a costume or a prop from last week's shoot into a new prop for this movie. Yeah, what do we have? We have a gorilla costume and a robot head. Let's make it work. Robot monster, here you go. (laughs) So anyway, the authors of this entry say that uh, the devil's horns, hooves, ears, tail, hairy lower body, all of these aspects are derived from the pan and the fawn tradition of classical antiquity. And people notice this. uh, The romantic poet Percy Shelley, who wrote Ozymandias, Look on my works, ye mighty in despair, he thought it was pretty weird that people would give the attributes of fawns to the devil as he found fawns, quote, quite poetical personages. Yeah. Uh, But the authors write that another major way the depiction of the devil was influenced by classical art is the devil's nakedness, reflecting Mm. the naked heroes of classical art like Hercules and that most Christian medieval art tried to avoid nudity when possible. It would cover people up, but the devil was often depicted as less covered, as more naked, more like one of these heroes of ancient Greece. Huh. Yeah. I mean, it also reminds me of these uh, various paintings of Poseidon where Poseidon uh, or just depictions of Poseidon where Poseidon is nude or nearly nude. Uh, just this, you know, bearded man in the water with the trident. Yeah, exactly. So granting the trident of Poseidon to the devil seems to be part of a larger medieval Christian project of associating Satan with the gods and the style of classical antiquity, of ancient Mesopotamia and of Greece and Rome. And so I think that's pretty persuasive, but Link makes it clear that there are no literary sources that will tell us where Satan got his trident. Like, you can't go into the texts of the time where they'll say, hey, I'm putting a trident in Satan's hands because I want to make this comparison to Poseidon. It's all just inference we have to make through the artistic traditions. So suddenly he just has a trident in the same way that these these depictions of the actual trident of Poseidon, like suddenly it looks a little more like a fork and a little yeah. less like lightning bolts or a lotus, depending on which interpretation one relies on. Right. But uh, Link says, you know, the the devil and his demons are really first shown carrying tridents, as I mentioned earlier, in some ninth century art. And one good example of this I've got a picture of for us here in the notes, Robert. It's from the Utrecht Psalter, which is a widely recognized work of medieval art. It's a collection of the Psalms from the Bible illustrated with pen and ink drawings, which are called illuminations. And uh, so I've got a drawing here that accompanies Psalm 38. Of course, Psalm 38, like a lot of the Psalms, has a lot of woe is me stuff in it. So it says, O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure, for thine arrows stick fast in me, and thy hand presseth me sore. Well, you didn't even get to the stinking wounds. Oh, no, do it, Robert. All right, I'm just going to cut to that part. Uh, my wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. <laughs> See, now there's that. There's a T-shirt design. Uh, I mean, a lot of the Psalms take this form. You know, it's like my wounds stink, everything's bad, but I can rely on the Lord. And they'll feature a, a call for mercy. So the illumination of Psalm 38 here shows the psalmist surrounded by three devils that are closing in on him. One is counting with his fingers. One of the devils has a measuring tape. That's kind of creepy. Mm. And the third has a trident. Uh, he's just sort of holding this. It's got the uh, the prongs coming out of the side at sort of right angles, and it looks very pointy and unpleasant. Yeah, the prongs are really spread out there. I think you'd have to you'd have to have a really wide set of buttocks to stab <laughs> with that. I mean, it emphasizes what what you're saying emphasizes that a lot of times when you see the devil with the pitchfork now, it's cute. It's yes. in cartoons. It's because for poking people it's for, in the bum. It's for poking your butt, you know, poking mm-hmm. you with a little like, ow, ow, ow. 
clearly these ancient depictions are, are supposed to be more graphic and horrifically violent in, in their suggestion uh, because after the ninth century actually, Link writes that the trident almost completely disappears hmm. from representations of Satan until the Renaissance when it shows up again in the devil's hands in the art of the time. And so what happened in between that? Like how come in the ninth century AD you've got devils with tridents? Uh, you didn't have it before that. You've got it then. Then it pretty much goes away throughout most of the medieval period and then it comes back again in the Renaissance. Link writes that during this medieval period where you don't see much trident, the devil is more often depicted uh, when he's holding a tool or a weapon. It seems to be a grapnel, which is a forked hook. Oh. Not very nice. So, why, yeah, why this shift? It's hard to be certain, but Link suggests there are a couple of answers. One of them is the relative influence of classical art, which would have depicted Poseidon or Neptune with a trident. And so Link writes that classical art fell out of favor with people uh, and people mostly lost access to it during the medieval period. Then interest in classical art reignited in the Renaissance. Thus, the Poseidon, sea god, Neptune, trident came back and was put into Satan's hands again when people started paying attention to classical art again. Uh, and another thing is more practical. During the medieval period in Europe, the use of the grapnel was common for torturing criminals and heretics and mm. it became more widespread. And so if the goal of the devil is to punish and torture sinners, and this was very often how the devil was represented in the Middle Ages, sort of as God's accomplice in your punishment – uh, it makes sense that he would he would have access to the weapons and torture devices that uh, people were more familiar with at the time. Yeah, that does. It makes sense that he would use an in instrument of torture rather than something that resembles either yeah, an, an implement for fishing or moving hay around or uh, a polearm uh, weapon that would often be used in, as a way of rising up against authority. No, Satan is kind of a part of the cosmic authority that is that is bearing down on you, right? Yeah, exactly. But uh, I, I do want to point out at the end here, this discontinuity between the weapons or implements is actually a pretty minor discrepancy compared to the huge differences in the way the devil overall is described and depicted. Like the devil is both a raging, hideous monster with animal qualities and at the same time a subtle, attractive, persuasive tempter. And this is actually where Link's – the title of his book comes from, The Mask Without a Face – that there's sort of the, this infinitely elastic quality to the character of the devil. All right, on that note, we're going to take one more break, but we'll be right back with more Trident. All right, we're back. So just a, a few other uh, mythical uh, examples I want to roll through here, mythical religious examples. Uh, you have Taoist trident bells, which are bells with uh, a decorative trident-like motif on top that represents the, the three divine teachers. And then you have uh, – this. I found this really interesting. You have offering forks in uh, ancient Judaism, and these are actually mentioned in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, so this is a, a little bit – just one more Bible reading here. Uh, this is from the King James Version. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand. And he struck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. I did not remember that part. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, you never remember like the 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 the, the meat pot skewering scene from <laughs> uh, from Second Samuel. But there you have it. You have a, a three toothed uh, uh, flesh hook there. But not in the hands of the devil. No, just uh, in, in the hands of uh, people working officially for the, the priests. Now, another trident that came up for us uh, is a, a bit more mysterious, maybe fittingly <laughs> mysterious, because uh -huh. in all of this, there's this quest to figure, you know, figure out, like, what is the trident and what does it represent? What does it stem for? And you, you kind of – when you try and, and grasp it, 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 it seeps through your, your fingers. Uh, tell us, Joe, about the trident of uh, Paracelsus. All right, we're about to venture into some sketchy territory. So there is a lot of weird-looking work out there you can find about this supposedly magical instrument known as the Trident of Paracelsus. Uh, Paracelsus was, of course, the byname of 
Philippus Aureolus Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim, <laughs> a 16th century German-Swiss Renaissance physician and alchemist. And Paracelsus is – he's an interesting kind of dual figure in, in history. On one hand, he was a physician and did make some real medical observations and real contributions to medical science such as writing a clinical description of the symptoms of syphilis. But he was also an alchemist. He wanted to turn lead into gold and he was a prolific fount of ideas that would later be the basis or similar to the basis for a lot of quack medicine in the centuries to come. Just one example, he wrote that in small enough doses, quote, similia similibus curantur, or what makes a man ill also cures him, which is, of course, if you know anything about quack medicine, um, it, he, of course, he wasn't the only physician in history to suggest this. But if you know anything about quack medicine, this helped contribute to the strain of thinking that gives us the modern scourge of homeopathy, the idea that like cures like, and that by taking super diluted versions of a drug that would give you some kind of symptom, you can cure that symptom. Homeopathy is not a part of modern medical science. It is not science-based medicine. And, uh, and and it can actually be really dangerous if people end up thinking they get tricked into some kind of homeopathy cure scheme and use that instead of more proven methods. But as far as the trident goes, uh, the provenance of this concept was difficult for me to figure out, but I think it is likely not actually from Paracelsus. So several sources point to the origin of this idea in the Archidoxes Magica or the Supreme Mysteries of Nature, which is an early modern grimoire about alchemy and the creation of magical talismans. It's attributed to Paracelsus probably falsely, possibly by another author or later editor of the works of Paracelsus. And I've been scouring a 17th century English translation of this volume in a slow-loading PDF from the Library of Congress, but I cannot find the reference to the trident in this piece. Maybe it's in there, but uh, if it is, I, I just went right over it and was never able to find this thing. But I'm, I'm frustrated because I spent forever trying to get these pages to load and I can't find the darn trident in there. But uh, <laughs> so maybe it's in there. Uh, supposedly, according to later writers, it is a magic three-pronged silver lemon used to cure impotence and diseases of all of the generative organs, of course, meaning generative organs are the genitals. I don't know if I want a trident near my genitals, uh, to be honest. Well, it's complicated how you're supposed to use it, according ah. to these later sources. I'm not sure if it needs to, to be near your genitals. It might, it might not. Uh, the instruction's unclear. <laughs> but uh, the French magician and occult writer Eliphas Levy, uh, who lived 1810 to 1875, had plenty of thoughts about the profundity of the trident of Paracelsus, assuming that it really existed. Uh, Levy writes, quote, Herein is the power of the trident, its haft and foundation. It is the universal law of nature. It is the very essence of the word, realized and demonstrated by the triad of human life, the archaeus or mind, the ode or plastic mediator, and the salt or visible matter. We have given separately the explanation of this figure because it is of the highest importance and denotes the compass of the highest genius of occult sciences. I feel more and more like... Like the trident is one of these symbols that you can you can place it into any kind of system of belief or philosophy or even into you know, the various sciences or, or or even just business I guess and the the, the symbol the, the the one becoming three or three things embodied with one thrust it kind of leeches ideas out of whatever you 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 place it in yeah and it I mean so. I admit that when I read that um, that Levy passage, it's just drivel to me. Like mm -hmm. it's just you could. It's almost like you could substitute any words for any other words, right? But 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 you, but you can you can see where it's like if you if you take the the trident and you stick it within alchemy mm -hmm. or, or or magic, it, uh, it, it you you can explain things that are uh, uh, alchemical or magical through the trident in the same way that you could use the trident as a metaphor in various other fields. Well, I've got a I've got a very loose general hypothesis about what I think might be going on here. And okay. so see what you think about this. And I would love to see if there's a way to test this against other evidence from psychology, uh, neuroscience, anthropology and all that. But here here's my very rough hypothesis about why we have a magical obsession with the trident and magical beliefs about three-bodied things, mm -hmm. you know, like a, you've got a trinity in religions. There, there are many, like, 
there are so many holy threes. Uh, my non-magical speculation is we're obsessed with the magic power of threes because three, in a way, is really a magic number for reality in our minds. Three is the number of a pattern. So a correlation happens once. Say you are in your car and you honk your car horn and a dog down the street howls. So first time that happens, that's just an event. Then say it happens again. You honk a second time and the dog howls again. And now the pattern detection software in your brain sort of goes on high alert. You're like, oh, is, is something going on here? And say if you do it a third time, you honk again, dog howls again, you have established a pattern now. You know, you, you kind of know your brain works this way. If something is correlated three times, you have discovered a meaningful pattern. You've discovered a law. This is true. And this pattern of threes is exactly what the pattern of threes in jokes takes advantage of. You know how there's always a pattern of three in mm -hmm. jokes you tell. Like if there's a, you know, three men walk into a bar joke, all three of them are going to say something and have a, you know, something, a pattern will be established with what happens to the first two men. And then something weird will happen with what the third one says or what happens to them. And what's happening there is because there's a similarity with the first two things, you're expecting the third one to match the pattern of the first two. And by subverting your expectations when we see what happens to the third guy in the bar, it's almost like you're violating a taboo. You know, you're subverting somebody's expectation that they are going to discover a pattern of correlations or a law. Huh. Yeah. And of course, we see this in so many different tales as well. I mean, it's the, it's the, it, you, you see with the three Billy Goats gruff, right? Exactly. You see yeah. it in, in Goldilocks coming in and trying the three porridge bowls, the three beds, et cetera. Totally. Exactly. So three is the number of times something happens where anecdote and then repeated anecdote become phenomena. And so I suspect since one of the highest functions of our brain is pattern recognition and three occurrences of an event or a correlation is what it usually takes for us to feel like we have confidently established a pattern, the number three is in some sense kind of hard-coded into us. It's like a powerful indicator of significance and regularity in nature. And in our minds, three becomes the number of law. So anyway, th that's my guess. I, I wonder if we, we're, you know, we're suckers for three-pronged instruments, which seems like such a mundane and kind of dumb thing to be obsessed with the magical powers of, because threes are inherently holy and powerful in our minds because of our pattern-seeking nature. Yeah, I mean, and I, and I like this idea too of of power being positioned in the th in three. Like, if you have three individuals voting on something, then there is an ability for for two of them to agree and one to disagree, and there still is a decision. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have three individuals in a yoga class, then everyone has plausible deniability if someone farts. So <laughs> safety in numbers. Yeah, you, once you have three, you have a group. Yes. Uh, but anyway, may maybe we should leave, depart the realm of uh, of religion and magic and, and psychology and go back to the, the gritty reality of tools and weapons. Uh, because when I think of tridents in the real world and not as clutched by gods, I definitely think of gladiatorial combat. Yes, you think of the Retarius or net fighter, one of the, the key types of gladiators uh, who fought with the, the trident, uh, a net, a weighted net, and a dagger. Now, of course, there were Various different types of gladiators that, uh, that that the Romans would use in these gladiatorial sports, right? Mm -hmm. They were uh, each one was a character uh, armed with uh, with some uh, some array of weapons and armor, and then uh, they would engage in uh, in combat. I am continually astonished every time I really think about the idea of uh, gladiatorial games mm -hmm. and. Uh, astonished when I realized, okay, so this was real fighting to the death in many cases. Like they, they were actually fighting and trying to injure and kill each other. Why hadn't they yet discovered that you could achieve the same kind of dramatic entertainment value simply by simulating dramatic fighting without actually hurting anyone? Well, you might well ask the same question of, uh, of, of today. I mean, because look, look around. We have we, – we certainly have um, – we have such dramatic fare as, say, professional wrestling, mm -hmm. but then we also have we still have professional boxing and uh, and uh, mixed martial arts in which individuals are are still engaging in in actual intentional um, violence against each other, though granted with with uh, with rules in place. Right. But even with uh, with gladi gladiator sport, there were rules. 
Mm-hmm. There, there, were, there, were, there were quite a few rules uh, to, to maintain a, a sense of order to everything. I mean, I guess that's kind of the appeal of making uh, people, uh, you know, engage in, uh, in violent acts against each other is that they're obeying these, uh, these set of rules that you've established for them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, whether or not you have rules, I mean, I, I understand why it can be exciting to, to watch people fight. We do that in our fiction all the time. Mm-hmm. Like we've got, you know, you've got violent movies and TV shows where there's mortal conflict between characters and you can get invested in it and it gets you wrapped up in the narrative. But it seems like that's so easy to do with just like a play. You know, you don't have to actually be hurting each other. Yeah, you can, you can have – with a fake fight, you can have a better fight that tells a better story that uh, – and, and also one in which the right individual, the correct individual wins. Right. Uh, that's very often the, the, the problem with a legit fight for entertainment purposes is that it is either not a good contest or the wrong individual wins. Like there's, a, there's an individual that if they were to win, that would tell the best story and instead they're the one uh, staring up at the lights. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I didn't mean to get all sanctimonious and moralize here, but I don't know. I, I think I'm going to stand by it. I don't know. Making people actually hurt each other for entertainment it just doesn't seem great to me. I'm against it as well. Uh, it, it, it is it – is when you look at the Roman gladiatorial uh, sport, it is both ridiculous and barbaric at the same time. Uh, for instance, the uh, Retarius here, fighting with this trident, which was sometimes barbed but typically smooth – uh, generally five centimeters between the spikes, and each cone spike is about 12 to 15 uh, millimeters. And they were, in a, in essence, a sea-themed gladiator. You know, they're fighting with a fishing net and a fishing spear, and sometimes they're even fighting in flooded conditions. And uh, they, they, were often, they often seem to embody more feminine elements as well uh, compared to the more armored masculine gladiator types, such as the uh, mermillo or the, uh, the, the secator, which was uh, essentially a fish it had a fish-like helm. So you had a fisherman battling a fish. You huh. had someone dressed up as a fisherman battling someone dressed up as a fish, and it might be to the death. This prefigures the Mortal Kombat in the third act of Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> now, obviously, this is, a, this is a violent Roman spectacle, and, and there, are very, there were very strict combat rules set in place. So it's not, it's not like a real-world example of a, of a trident. It's, a, it's a, a, an artificial but uh, potentially lethal combat scenario, right? But I was wondering, like, to what extent is it, an, is it a practical weapon at all? Because it never seemed practical to me. I would see these images of uh, Zeus or the devil with a trident, and it just did not look like a good weapon choice. No, yet again, it looks kind of cartoony. It's like in those early cartoons. It looks like it's for one cartoon character to poke another one in the butt. Yeah, and so you wonder, well, do, do these gladiators with the trident, do they, do, trident are, they, are they at a disadvantage? I mean, certainly they have a reach advantage, but then they don't have much armor on. Uh, and all they can do is if, if, the, um, if their opponent gets in too close, they would have to, I guess, drop the trident and use their dagger as mm-hmm. a last resort weapon. So I was looking into this just to see, like, did anyone – did they actually ever kill anyone with a trident? And I found a paper that was uh, published in Forensic Science International from 2005 by Fabian Kahn's and Carl Groschmidt titled Head Injuries of Roman Gladiators. What? Yeah. Whoa. And uh, they point out that there's a lot of forensic evidence on gladiator combat. Uh, quote, the gladiator weaponry is well known through historical sources. At least one injury per known type of offensive weapon could be identified, as well as evidence for the most popular, the gladiator trident, which was found to be represented by one uh, paramortem, uh, that means at, the, at or near the time of death, and two uh, antimortem or before death injuries. Overall, the reportedly very strict nature of combat rules for gladiator fights could be confirmed by the absence of multiple uh, paramortal traumatized individuals, showing a lack of the excessive violence commonly observed on medieval battleground victims. So they were looking at human skulls here from a gladiator cemetery in ancient uh, Ephesus, which is uh, modern-day Turkey. Uh, And this was originally unearthed in 1993. So uh, here's what they had to say about their findings. Quote, 11 individuals exhibited a total of 16 well-heeled antimortal cranial traumata. Five of the 11 individuals showed multiple trauma. Ten individuals exhibited a total of 10 paramortal cranial traumata. This is a surprisingly high frequency of deadly head injuries, taking into account that most of the gladiator types wore helmets. 
A possible explanation could be the frequently reported death blow technique used by the hammer-carrying death god Dispater. Yikes, what is going on there? Okay, so this was this was new to me. I, I I'm, I'm not that well versed in, in gladiator, uh, gladi- gladiatorial combat, but Dispater was a costumed arena servant in character as a death god that would finish a sufficiently wounded gladiator off with a hammer. God, that's horrible. Now they wrote, quote, it is not known exactly how this execution was performed, but um, I have to say uh, I have a powerfully strong guess <laughs> about how they might have carried this out. <laughs> But as for trident wounds to the skull, uh, they they all seem to have involved two but not three wounds. And that makes sense, right? Because uh, even with a, a reasonably narrow trident, uh, you know, how are you going to land all three um, uh, teeth of that thing on the human skull? I'm just trying to think how – there are these head wounds that are there in the evidence from people's bones, but they appear to have survived also. Like some people died with apparently healed over head wounds from, from the combat. Yeah. <laughs> I mean this is a this is a brutal, brutal time and place. As long as uh, you're able to continue and uh, they don't have to call Dispater over there to, to deal with you. Now, as for other functional tridents in like military and combat history, we already talked about pole arms a little bit. Uh, but I, I also want to throw in that in that uh, older book, uh, The Night of the Gods by John o- O'Neill that I referenced earlier, um, he describes an imperial Chinese trident with the third blade turned back toward the, the wielder. So it's like, you know, uh, slicked back, if you will. So the first blade is for slicing. It's kind of, uh, you know, very blade-like. Uh, the middle one is longer and is for stabbing. And then this other one comes back for slicing as well. Hmm. So it was just an interesting take on the trident design that I'd never seen before. So what kind of trident does Aquaman have? This is a – I'm glad you brought this up, Joe, because if you, if you look at some of these comic book images of Aquaman, he does have a trident. And very often – it is depicted as just a trident. But other times, there are extra barbs. So he ironically <laughs> no longer has a trident. Uh, he has uh, what, a pentadent. A pentadent or something. Yeah, and I, uh, a lot of people pointed this out with the, the, the new DC uh, Cinematic Universe uh, uh, version of Aquaman. But you also see this in the comics. You see, uh, you see these images of Aquaman with this ridiculous non-trident in his hands. Why do they do that? Do they not even – wait, is, is Aquaman related to Poseidon or Neptune or is – I, I don't know my Aquaman anymore. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not super versed in the comic either, but I understand there is a lot. They have injected a lot of, uh, of, of uh, like Greek undersea mythology into the property. Yeah. Yeah. Is he played by Cal Drogo? Yeah, Jason Momoa. Very striking as Aquaman. Well, I say give him three prongs. <laughs> you know what they should really do with Aquaman is give him the impossible trident. Oh, yes. This is the 20th century optical illusion, which is – if you start – at first glance, you see a, a trident. You see three prongs, like essentially a tuning fork with three prongs. But then when you start – when you really look at it, you realize there is no middle prong. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's just a bident as opposed to a trident. Uh, yeah, it's an optical illusion. Well, actually, there – I don't know if there even are the two prongs on the side because the three-dimensional representation of them doesn't line oh, yeah. up. So. Uh, you're just given this repeatedly false perspective where one edge bleeds into another. The more you look at it, the more it, it hurts your brain because mm-hmm. you really want to form a 3D image out of it and uh, it, it, it's increasingly difficult to do so. This was not M.C. Escher, was it? Seems no, like it no, should be. it wasn't. Uh, but but it's, yeah, it's the very type of uh, optical illusion that uh, he often played with. But see, that's perfect for for a god to have his weapon. So if you've got Aquaman and he's somehow like uh, he's like the the Thor of DC, uh, he's like a traditional Greek god character. He must have access to some kind of forbidden geometry. Here you would get <laughs> the forbidden geometry combined with the traditional trident of the sea god. I feel like this is the very kind of thing that surely Grant Morrison did this at some point. Had a character with a uh, an impossible trident. Oh yeah, that seems perfect. All right, so there you have it, the trident. Uh, If you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, past episodes even on mythic weapons, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is where you will find them, as well as links out to our various social media accounts. And if you want to support the show, just rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Big thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us to let us know your feedback about this episode or any other, to request a topic for the future, to uh, just say hi, let us know where you listen from, how you found out about the show, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. 
And now, Robert, I am to understand you wanted to feature a bracing industrial Easter egg for this show. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've never featured any industrial music on the show before, <laughs> but this is a perfect track to close out with. Yeah, this is a band you've interviewed before on our website, I think. Right, Robert? Yeah, so uh, the band is Three Teeth. <laughs> they uh, they actually get their name from the Trident. Again, oh, okay. Trident, Three Teeth. This seems appropriate then. Yeah, and this is uh, this is the track Divine Weapon off the 2017 album Shutdown.exe. Yeah, I chatted with the uh, frontman uh, Alexei Minkola about the band's name and the use of Trident symbolism a couple of years back. And when I reached out to them about using the track on this episode, uh, Lex also pointed out that uh, the Shutdown.exe EXE vinyl actually has a gatefold trident when you open it uh, that maps the trident of uh, of Paracelsus uh, that we talked about earlier. And you can find out more about that release and the band at Three Teeth, that's with a numeral, threeteeth.org, or look them up wherever you get your music. So if you have an appetite for some industrial metal, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> 